Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisbee and in today's program, Sky Gold Ventures, James Turk and Michael Hampton. A reminder that nothing you hear in this show constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. It's just an expression of opinion only. And a reminder also that companies do pay a fee to appear on the show. Not a lot, but without that fee, we wouldn't have a show. So, as I always say, let's crack on with the show. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com sitting in Starbucks in Hammersmith, that well-known den of gold bugs, with James Turk, the founder and chairman of Gold Money. Hello, James. Hello, Dominic. Welcome to the show, and uh, we're going to talk gold and the dollar and all the usual things. And I'm going to start off, uh, James, I've, I've uh, heard you saying on other radio shows over the last few weeks that uh, you see a crisis coming for the dollar this summer. When you say crisis, uh, how big a crisis? I mean, are we talking like sterling in 1992 or something bigger? I think it's probably closer to sterling in 1974, which was a huge crisis, and the IMF had to come in and bail out the UK back at that time. That bad? Yeah, I really think all the signs are there. Um, you know, we bounced over the past couple of weeks from 71 and a half to, uh, to 73.30 or so, you know, a couple points on the dollar index. But that's not enough to change the trend. That was just a short-term bounce to relieve some stress that we had been seeing. And we're already back below 73 again on the dollar index. And I would guess within the next week or two, we're probably going to be testing that low. You know, I think a good way to you know, evaluate this, this forecast that I've made about a crisis in the dollars, just watch that dollar index. Um, I think if we're you know, at, or, um, at the old low of 71.30 or at a new low by the end of this month, I think everything is still in place. But look at the signs that we're seeing out there. You know, crude oil now, $1.21, uh, $121 um, or a barrel of crude oil. I wish it was $1.21. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 60 <laughs> years ago it was, not today. But, um, you know, uh, food prices rising. I did an article on this um, not too long ago. Is basically not an agricultural problem, but a monetary problem. There's too much money, too many dollars out there chasing goods and services, and people would rather hold goods rather than dollars. So... Uh, I mean, what, what happened? What will happen in this uh, dollar crisis? The, the purchasing power of the dollar will decrease? How, how dramatically? You know, again, it's, it's going to probably reflect itself in higher inflation rates, higher food prices, higher crude oil prices. Um, you, you know, you can't really predict these things. All you can sort of do is prepare yourself for the worst in case the worst happens. And the way to prepare yourself is to be out of dollar-denominated assets and in um, tangible assets and other things that you feel you know good about you know the tangible assets like the precious metals uh, also uh, equities of um, energy producers or agricultural uh, related companies which have continued to do very well in this market if we get a dollar crisis how will that affect equities in general well i think the market will um, you have to analyze two halves of the market 
Uh, that part of the equity market that's related to commodity producers, energy producers, you know, things that uh, people uh, want and need, I think that will continue to do well, as it has been doing over the past couple of years. And the financial side of the market, the banks, the insurance companies, the credit card companies, the mortgage brokers, all that, they're going to continue to remain weak, and you're probably going to see new lows in there. So it's a mixed market. Um, you want to be on that side of the market where tangible assets are involved, and you want to be out of that portion of the market where there's financial assets involved. I've noticed the way uh, the stock markets have gone over the last um, year or so is that the stocks that are related to tangible assets, i.e. mining companies, oil companies, um, have kind of half traded like the commodity and half traded like the stock market. And uh, every time the stock market sells off, they tend to sell off as well. And the actual tangible assets themselves, I mean, for example, oil, if you look at oil, uh, in, since the beginning of uh, 2007, oil is up 80%, or probably nearer 90% now. Shell is up 15%. BP is up 7%. Yeah, it's the same phenomenon also with regard to the gold mining companies. You know, a lot of the gold mining companies have been basically flat or even down while the gold price um, has risen over the past several months. The explanation on the gold mining companies for this phenomenon, in my mind, is pretty clear. It's simply a result of higher energy costs in terms of gold. Um, historically, from the end of the Second World War up to 2000, it cost about 2.3 gold grams per barrel of crude oil. And since 2000, we've been fairly consistently over 3 gold grams uh, per barrel of crude oil. And we're now at the moment of 4.3 gold grams per barrel of crude oil. What that essentially is saying is that the cost of energy for mining companies is rising relative to the revenue they generate from their sales of gold. So their profit margins are being squeezed. Um, crude oil has only been this high one time before, and I think it was like 2003. Uh, so we're really at the tail end of the curve in terms of energy costs, uh, which basically means that um, you know, crude oil is very expensive relative to gold. Yes, I mean, it is, and if you're a technical trader, you would say now is the time to sell your crude oil and buy gold. That's basically it. Uh, but the there's trend, a lot more to the crude oil the, price, though, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot more to the crude oil price, and you've got the gold cartel continuing to sit on the gold price. Um, you know, one of the tenets of trading is that when something goes into all-time new high territory, you don't touch it, uh, or you don't try to fight it, put it that way. You, you ride with the trend, you own it, you don't fight, you don't fight the trend. And, you know, when crude oil went to new all-time highs, we've just continued climbing. And uh, it can go anywhere on the upside. You know, if you look at markets where new, new highs have been made, sometimes they just keep climbing and climbing and climbing for weeks and months. And that may very well happen with crude oil. Gold, on the other hand, didn't follow that script. You know, we got to new, new all-time highs, uh, got up to 1,000, and the gold cartel circled the wagons, and you know, they've, they've driven the gold price back down. There's been a lot of activity recently about um, heavy physical selling in the uh, London bullion market, and that's a sure sign that the central banks have been trying to keep gold from running away to the upside. But, you know, this is a great opportunity to continue accumulating, which is, as you know, Dominic, what I've been saying all along, you know, just month in, month out, you know, continue to take any you know, currency that you generate, put it into the metals because the metals are undervalued. Uh, relative to currencies. In effect, the central banks are doing us a favor by keeping the metal as low as it is. At what point are we going to reach peak central bank gold? By that I mean the point at which half of the central bank's gold reserves have been uh, spent. Yeah, you know, that's a question we really don't know because the um, central banks don't provide um, honest reporting. You know, they book 
gold in the vault and gold out on loan as one line item, which is, of course, against generally accepted accounting principles because that's like saying cash and accounts receivables are the same thing. Mm -hmm. They obviously have different risks. So we really don't know. But my sense of it is is that we may have reached that moment in time where central banks are no longer going to be the factor in the market that they have been. It, it, if That would be consistent with my thinking for a collapse in the dollar this summer, you know, where eventually the banks just throw in the, tile, uh, throw in the towel and recognize that not only have they lost the battle, but they've lost a war. It, that's what happened back in the 1960s um, when they finally threw in the towel in March of 1968 and let gold start going on its own. Uh, without central bank intervention. I think it's a wonderful thing that so much gold seems to be headed into private hands rather than government hands. Absolutely. You know, the less gold that's in government hands, the less ability they have to manipulate its price. They, they still have one other tool, of course, and that's propaganda. You know, they're always constantly talking down the gold price and talking up the dollar. I mean, how many times have we heard about the strong dollar policy as the dollar's fallen from 120 on the dollar index to, you know, 73 at the moment? How that man can say we have a strong dollar policy and live with himself is, is, is amazing. But yeah, anyway. it truly is. I've kind of followed the, the pattern of the gold has traced out since this uh, bull market began around about 2001. And what I've noticed is it... Uh, the gold price surges and then consolidates and then surges and these surges tend to last six to nine months and then you see maybe a year of consolidation with a slight upward bias and it was very apparent for example from August 2005 through to May 2006 we had a huge move up to about 7.30 and then we had basically a year or even 18 months of consolidation until we kind of found a bottom in August last year and then we had this big move to uh, 1,020 and I've kind of predicted in my, I write for Money Week, and I've kind of predicted that we're going to see another year or so of consolidation as these higher prices, um, cons well, I keep saying the word consolidate, but as they consolidate themselves, with 850 as a, an obvious place for a bottom. Do you, I mean, but if, if we get this dollar crisis, that's not going to happen, is it? No, and, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of your observations about what the way the gold market has traded in, in recent years. But my sense of it has been that this year is going to be different. Um, um, I don't see the long period of consolidation. Um, but having said that, I didn't think this correction would be as deep as it has either. So, you know, take my, <laughs> my forecast for what it's worth. But my sense of it still is, is that this um, uh, correction that we're seeing in the gold price is going to be fairly short-lived um, and that uh, we're going to be heading higher here in uh, very near term. You know, normally there's this seasonal pattern in gold, and it probably works 75% of the time. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, you're strong during the autumn into the first quarter. You'd normally top out sometime around the first quarter, beginning of the second quarter, and then you have a summer doldrums, and then you repeat the cycle. And, you know, that's good all of the times except when it doesn't work. Um, you know, it didn't work, for example, in 1982 during the Mexican um, credit crisis back then. Um, and I don't think it's going to work this year. Um, you know, if my, my view about a dollar crisis uh, this summer is correct, I think you're going to see gold moving back up quite quickly. I think the closest comparison this year that we can make is 1974. Um, 1974 was a year that just kept getting worse and worse. The inflation numbers kept getting worse and worse. And also the financial crisis back then kept getting worse and worse until you had the collapse of Franklin National Bank in August of 1974, which up until that moment in time was the uh, largest bank failure in U.S. history. 
So my expectation is that um, this credit crisis is going to continue to deteriorate. The markets are continuing to freeze up. People are worried about counterparty risk, and that doesn't change overnight. It's going to take a, a long time before that changes. And I think because there's so much weakness in the system, it's going to continue to deteriorate. As I said before, I write for Money Week, and my, we did some New Year's predictions, and mine, uh, only my gold and silver ones made it through the edit. But one of the other predictions that I made was for $125 oil, and uh, that we would see that a sterling crisis was looking very likely this year. And, I mean, if the dollar's in free fall, the, the, uh, the sterling's on a kind of bungee jump or something. Yeah, in fact, we're already seeing that uh, just in the past few months, the sterling's fallen from 140 against the euro to 127 against the euro. So it shows that sterling is, is weak. Um, it, you know, in other words, both the dollar and sterling are falling against the euro pretty much uh, lockstep, although there was a moment in time when the sterling was even weaker than the dollar uh, because, you know, you, uh, when you're 140 against the euro, you were two against the, uh, the dollar, and um, you've declined to mainly to the, you know, 196, 197 area against but, the I mean, dollar. We have, fundamentally, we have greater problems in America. I think we make even less than America does. We have greater debt levels than America does, but we do have higher interest rates, and... Um, our money supply growth is, I think, M3 is about 13% here. It's not as big as it is in the States. Yeah, 13% by any kind of measure, that means a lot of inflation. In the U.S. now, 17%, so yeah. they're not that far apart. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the point that you're raising about um, a sterling crisis and, and money growth rates, you know, all of the world currencies have money growth rates now up in double digits. And, you know, they're just really, the central banks are really inflating the system. You know, they think that by inflating the system, they're going to uh, solve the debt crisis by weakening currencies, the purchasing power, making the debt less of a burden. But balance sheets, I think, have deteriorated so significantly, and creditworthiness uh, has become such a um, um, uh, treasured commodity that you know few people are really have the capacity to expand credit the way it was done in the past. Is this? I mean, in all your years watching the markets, is this the worst things have ever been? Are we facing, facing a kind of once-in-a-generation crisis? Yeah, it's right up there with 1974. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's as bad as 74 so right. far, but um, this is a definitely a once-in-a-generation crisis. The interesting thing, though, is, is this just going to be a crisis or is this going to result in a fundamental change in the system? Mm. And again, if I'm right about you know, problems with the dollar, this might result in a fundamental change in the system. And you know, what does that mean? Um, I find it hard to believe that governments are going to go back to gold again, uh, but, you know, that's ultimately what's required. But, you know, there will be some market-based solutions that I think are ultimately going to change uh, the way money currency um, are, are viewed. And this could be the series of events building up over the next few months uh, to the end of the year that, that might bring about those fundamental changes. Okay. So, I mean, one of my listeners' questions was, is this the most interesting financial event of your lifetime? Absolutely. You know, for six decades, the dollar has been the world's reserve currency, and it's apparent to me that uh, that reign is ending. It's probably going to be ending soon. Um, you know, it's not. This has happened before. You know, sterling was the world's currency for 250 years. Um, the dollar has been world reserve currency now for 60 years. The interesting question is, what's going to replace the dollar? And nobody can really foresee that now, except gold, I think, is going to have a fundamental role in realigning the global monetary system. Well, I'll tell you what's going to replace the dollar. The one, Richard Russell first drew my attention to this, is that uh, the Chinese have got shed loads of dollars. 
they've, I don't know what the figure is, two, uh, is it two trillion they've got now? It's up there, close to two trillion now. They've suddenly become the world's biggest gold producer, replacing South Africa. They must have, and, and you know, they, they recently bought 42% um, of Jinshan, and the reason they've bought that is they want they want to improve their own mines, their own gold mines. Um, they were impressed with uh, Jinshan's ability to, to mine, you know, low-grade ore, basically, and, and, and they, want to, they want some of that Canadian expertise. I, I think the Chinese must have designs on some kind of reserve currency status. I, I don't think they're quite ready, um, and I don't, th I don't really see them as a replacement for the dollar in the near term. Um, there, there are a couple of issues in my mind. Well, first of all, let me relate to the, uh, talk about the gold uh, part. Um, several years ago, the Chinese used to report 400 tons of gold, official reserves. And that was the number that they reported to the IMF, and that thing hadn't changed in decades. Then they started showing increases, uh, took it up to like 550 tons, and then mysteriously they stopped uh, reporting any changes in the reserves. But the, 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 the thinking is, and I believe this to be, be accurate, that quietly the, the Chinese central bank is accumulating reserves and I would guess that they probably have uh, more than a thousand tons of gold and they're probably still continuing to accumulate more gold. That's not enough gold to back the yuan uh, no. in my mind to, to turn it into the world's reserve currency. The second thing is... But a combination of that and the dollars that they have. Well, the dollars, if the dollars become worthless, you know, okay. that, that becomes worthless too. And besides that, two trillion, that's the total reserves. They report the reserves in dollars, but that's just, that doesn't mean they own, they own two trillion of dollars. In fact, I think the dollar holdings, although they don't report it officially, uh, you know, what the composition of the currency reserves are, I think it's been fairly consistent uh, in the three to four hundred billion dollar number that as new money has come in, they've diversified into tangible assets, equities, you know, buying, you know, 10 percent of um, uh, yeah, and, and uh, BlackRock and you know, a lot of other things, um, even if some of those investments haven't worked out, uh, they haven't done that badly when measured against uh, you know, uh, uh, what the dollar would have been had yeah. they been holding dollar-denominated dollar assets instead. But uh, the, the other point I was going to make about the Chinese, well, I, I don't think they're quite ready. There's still, many t uh, there's still too many controls um, within China on foreign exchange, and you know, they're rapidly loosening those. But until they have a, a, a freely convertible currency, um, both domestically and internationally, um, with a backed by a strong rule of law um, uh, mandate within the government in terms of property rights and things of that issue, I, I don't see it as a replacement for the dollar. It could happen a couple of years down the road, but if we have a dollar crisis in the ne in the near term, I don't see the yuan filling that role. I have lots of questions from listeners for you, and uh, I'm just going to rattle through some of them now. How do you define hyperinflation? How do I define hyperinflation? Yeah, yeah. What, is, what is inflation and what is hyperinflation? I mean, uh, what, what percentage? Yeah, it's probably hard to, you know, distinguish between the, the two. I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure there's a, a set definition, but I would guess anything, um, you know, three digits or above would clearly be hyperinflation yeah. in my mind. That, you know, one would argue that even 50% inflation annualized could be hyperinflation because of the rapid depreciation of the currency. Um, you know, if you look at uh, crude oil, you, one could even argue that in dollar terms we're seeing hyperinflation in crude oil prices, the way crude oil has risen over the past 12 to 18 months. Yeah, 80%? Yeah. You've said before you think we're headed into hyperinflation, and uh, you're a great student of Weimar Germany, and uh, in fact your parents lived in Austria 
during my father, that time. Yeah, my, my father was born in Austria. So it's a subject that you know a great deal about. But there, there are two great differences between then and now in my mind. The first one is that in Weimar Germany, there wasn't the same debt levels. Now, the impact of that debt, to my mind, is, is deflationary rather than inflationary, or, or certainly for the individual who has the debt. What, what's your comment on that? Um, this is an extremely complex question. In order to answer it, you really have to look at the nature of currency itself and the nature of banking. Um, Weimar Germany, uh, well, let me start this way. There are two types of currency. I call them cash currency and deposit currency. Yeah. Cash currency is the paper that we carry around in our pockets that's issued by the central bank. Deposit currency is the money we keep in deposit in banks and turn into currency by writing checks or using credit cards or doing wire transfers. Now, the predominant banking system today is a two-currency um, uh, economic monetary system, and this is because the world pretty much has adopted the Bank of England model. Um, but in Weimar, Germany, uh, they really didn't have any uh, well-established deposit currency. Everything was pretty much done by cash. So the, they were able to hyperinflate simply by just printing more and more money, pretty much like what's happening in Zimbabwe today. Yes. It's also a cash currency economy, not a deposit currency economy. So the question that you're raising is how can you have hyperinflation when you have a huge uh, portion of the currency being deposit currency rather than, than, uh, than cash currency? And the answer is very simple. We're seeing it now, what's happening in bank balance sheets. Um, the, the credit is continuing to expand in the bank balance sheet because a lot of off-balance sheet credit is now coming on, on bank balance sheets as the commercial paper market dries up. For example, a lot of co companies had borrowed in the commercial paper market and they paid banks a back, uh, usually like a one-quarter, one-half percent fee to have a, a revolving credit backing up the borrowing on the commercial paper market so that if the company couldn't borrow commercial paper, they could come back into the bank and borrow, uh, borrow from the banks. Well, whenever you borrow from the bank, you're increasing bank loans and increasing bank deposits at the same time. So bank balance sheets have been exploding, which is part of the reason why M3 is going up, uh, growing in the United States now over 17% per annum. So to answer your question, um, you know, this inflationary, deflationary issue, which has uh, been going on, we're seeing inflation because M3, a bank currency, is expanding very, very rapidly as uh, people are taking off-balance sheet debt and putting it on the balance sheets of the banks. But if you, as an individual, hold a great deal of debt, the, the implications are rather grim, aren't they? Except for the fact that your debt will be inflated away. Well, yeah, that's the point. Uh, it does not necessarily have to be uh, grim because if the dollar collapses, those liabilities that you have, if they're dollar-denominated, become less and less of a burden. And I think that's part of the reason the Federal Reserve is you know, pumping up the money supply the way it is, is to decrease the burden of the federal government as well as all of the over-indebted uh, debtors out there uh, to try to lessen the burden of that debt. But that's not deflationary. That's inflationary as the you know, the value of, um, of, the, of the dollar, the purchasing power of the dollar, continues to decrease in an inflationary environment. So what, I mean, but what happens if you get a situation where people stop spending and start hoarding, even if they're only hoarding cash? Well, that's different. Um, you, you know, uh, money, uh, GDP, you know, gross domestic product, is a function of M and V, money and velocity. 
So uh, if the velocity stops, you can have a real contraction in, in, uh, in economic activity, even if you're expanding uh, the money supply. You know, if on a relative basis, the velocity uh, drops by a greater percentage than you're expanding in money supply, the formula will work out that you're going to have a contraction in GDP. Um, but, you know, velocity is not decreasing. Uh, velocity is increasing. Uh, and, it, again, I think that's partly because as soon as people are receiving dollars, they're doing something with that. They're buying goods and services. They're getting out of dollars, uh, which, is, in my mind, is a preliminary sign that you're in the early stages of the collapse. It's another subtle indication, just like rising commodity prices. But hasn't, uh, haven't banks stopped lending? They, I know they have here. They, um, it's hard to get a new credit, but there are a lot of existing credits that banks have already committed to lend. Um, because of contractual agreements that banks have with borrowers, you know, backup lines of credit and things of that nature. And in many instances, banks are forced to lend to throw good, good money after bad so as not to recognize losses on their balance sheet. Um, and that's why bank balance sheets are continuing to expand. Okay. I'm going to read you this question out. And it's quite a long question. You've kind of half covered it already because it's on a similar subject. In the fiat money and hyperinflation discussion, what many commentators fail to comment on is the lack of similarity and non-existence of the most important aspect of the financial system, and that is the size and importance of the bond market. It didn't exist in Germany at the time, as exists in the US and worldwide now. That the bond market which exists today wasn't available to reject the monetary inflationary component as it exists in the US over the last 50 years. That's why we haven't yet seen hyperinflation as in the Weimar or Argentina or Zimbabwe. Without rising prices, hyperinflation cannot exist. And I would suggest that if the long bond starts falling, all asset prices will be repriced in relative terms. Therefore, the hyperinflation argument will be hard to sustain. Right now, you're seeing the market and the Fed engineering a curve steepening process to reliquify the banks. The long bond will fall because who's left to buy? In that environment, how can prices be bid up? Should the long bond keep rising, then you might achieve hyperinflation. But why would you buy a 30-year instrument with a 4% yield and all the problems that the U.S. has at government level? Yeah, that's really a good question. Uh, I don't understand why people are buying T-notes and T-bonds. As he says, you know, um, why would you want such a low yield relative to inflation rates? Because inflation is going to get worse, not better, in my view. I think a couple of things have happened. Um, you know, the huge trade deficits of the United States have put a lot of dollars overseas, and those dollars have come back in terms of demand by foreign central banks to keep, uh, which has kept um, yields on uh, long-term paper artificially low. Because not only do they buy short-term government paper, they'll also go out the curve as well as buy agency paper. But there's another aspect of that question that I think is extremely relevant right here at this moment. And in fact, it's one of the things I'm following most closely, which is the yield on the 10-year T-note. Um, for a few years, the bond vigilantes uh, have been dead, uh, you know, out to lunch, uh, at the pub, not interested, however you want to describe it. But they look to be coming back. And um, the yield on the 10-year uh, note is now falling to levels that we haven't, excuse me, right, the yield is rising to levels, prices are falling to levels that we haven't seen uh, for quite some time. And this looks like a reversal in trend, uh, which suggests to me that we're going to have higher and higher T-note yields. So the fact that T-note yields are rising 
at, as, 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 as rapidly as they have been over the past few weeks. You know, from a technical point of view, the 10-year T-note chart looks horrible. It looks like prices are going to drop dramatically. Um, um, at, uh, the, looking at the June futures or the September futures chart, um, you know, you could see prices back down to 100, in my mind, in the very near term, just given the nature of the chart. And that, in my mind, would also be consistent with a collapse in the dollar. That's why I'm watching these uh, T-bond, the T-note yields very carefully. Uh, it, it will be a way of trying to counteract um, the problems in a currency crisis by having those rates uh, climb to higher yields. But I think the dollar is going to collapse more rapidly than yield will climb, so you're still going to end up a loser. Uh, if you um, have any T-note um, uh, so, position. I mean, I think that that uh, uh, listener was basically saying that because of the bond market, you can't have hyperinflation, and that's something you don't agree with. No, I don't agree with it at all, because it's not uh, corporations or anybody like that that determine whether there's hyperinflation or not. It determines whether the central bank, working hand-in-glove with the federal government, print too many dollars, create too much deposit currency, monetize too much government debt. Um, I mean, we're monetizing everything in the United States now. Uh, a lot of this mortgage paper is coming to the Federal Reserve for monetization. Um, so, you know, it used to be back in the old days, you could only monetize short-term T-bills, and that standard has changed over the past few decades. You know, back in 1994, um, uh, during the Mexican debt crisis, they even monetized some Mexican debt there for a while. Um, but uh, the Federal Reserve can monetize anything, and, um, uh, and in fact, that's what they're doing. So it's, uh, it's still, in my mind, an inflationary, if not hyperinflationary, outlook. Now, you've always said it's better to own tangible assets, and you've included real estate in that. Now, obviously, the markets in real estate are falling here and in the U.S. Um, is that because this isn't, a, a, and if you like, a simple hyperinflation like the Weimar Germany was? It's because of our banking system. No, I've, um, I, first of all, I've recommended owning tangible assets because money is being pulled out of financial assets and going into tangible assets. Um, and it's happening because of the inflation in, in um, the environment and also because of counterparty risk. You know, when you own a, a house or a piece of uh, farmland um, and there's no debt on it, you don't have counterparty risk. You mm -hmm. own something that's real as opposed to financial assets where you always depend on, upon someone's promise. Um, yeah, you know, I was just looking at housing prices um, uh, coming back on the plane trip, and uh, yeah, they're down the last month, but uh, two months prior they were still up. So even in a um, uh, you know uh, over glutted um, uh, housing environment, um, you know prices are maybe doing all right uh, compared to um, you know people who had money at Northern Rock, for example. <laughs> now the, the, the next question that loads of people have uh, asked. Uh, and they want to hear your, your take on it, is, is shortages in the silver market. Is this uh, something you've experienced recently in the physical silver market? We had a hiccup um, in Zurich a couple of weeks ago where um, our supplier um, had indicated the date when some silver was going to be delivered and it didn't appear and um, uh, came two days later and they said it was a manual error. Now, was it a manual error or not? You know, who really knows? Um, I think there is a shortage of physical silver in the bars and coins because the fabrication um, supply has not kept up with the demand. Um, you know, the mints are overworked. They can't produce enough silver uh, coins and bars to, to meet the demand. And that ultimately feeds back to the, to, the, to the major markets. 
But, you know, ultimately the prices will adjust themselves, and that's one of the reasons why I'm bullish on, on silver prices here yeah. uh, as well. Do you, do you believe that a lot of manipulation is going on on the COMEX? Um, yeah, I really believe in a concentrated short position in silver. I mean, the numbers look real, and the, there's a logic for them to you know, build these short positions. When you're short, you earn the contango, and you don't have to store the stuff. Uh, stuff. So, you know, that's very profitable for the banks to take that position. So it's, in my mind, very reasonable and understandable how this huge concentrated short position has been built up. You know, banks are, um, uh, uh, you know, selling silver and um, earning the contango and avoiding the storage costs and using the, the proceeds they get from that to, to fund dollar assets. Mm -hmm. um, I also heard the silver, the short position had to do with the fact that a lot of uh, metals producers produce silver as a byproduct of their main whatever metal they're mining, the, the main metal that they're mining. And, and the short position on the COMEX is a, is a result of their hedging their silver. Um, you know, there is some silver hedging going on. Uh, you know, whether it's the producers or not, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just not really sure. You, you never really have, you know, clarity on those figures anyway. Um, I think most of, as a general rule, I think most hedging is, is, has ended for both the gold and the silver mining companies. Right. You still, some banks still require hedging, you know, in order to do project financing, but uh, companies are opting to do that by buying puts rather than selling forward. Right. Let's um, have a look at these. Um, oh, yes. Which, people from which countries are the main purchasers of gold and silver with gold money? Um, we have customers in over 100 different countries around the world, but um, the biggest share comes from uh, North America, U.S. and Canada. Uh, but um, Great Britain is, um, is also a, a major uh, customer. Um, Australia is probably the next one after that, um, and then the rest of it would be dispersed all over. Do you think you might take gold money public in the foreseeable future? It's always possible, you know, it would be a decision by the board of directors if they thought it made sense. Uh, there are certain benefits to that. I think it would raise our stature as a publicly traded company um, to, uh, as opposed to being privately held. Um, you know, we are profitable, so, you know, there's no reason um, uh, not to go public from, from that point of view. Um, I suppose it's a question of whether, you know, it just ultimately makes sense for the company. And, yeah, I'm sure that's something we're going to be looking at and analyzing in the future. The gold-silver ratio, it seems to kind of always go back to 50 or just over 50. It, it, it kind of goes up to about 40, 45, 46, and then it goes back down again just as quickly. Do you have a comment on the gold-silver ratio? Yeah, I thought we were ready um, back in February and um, January um, for the gold-silver ratio to uh, fall all the way down to 40. Um, but, you know, it didn't happen, and we came down into the high 40s, 46 area, and then we went back. Um, my forecast for this year has been um, the same, that, you know, we're going to end the year at around 1,100, 1,200 on gold, and that I thought we could see uh, 40 on the ratio, um, which would put silver, you know, uh, 28 $30. And I'm sticking with that. Um, you know, clearly the, the momentum is in favor of the ratio falling. Um, and it's, I think, just a question of time um, for this correction to finish, and you're going to see that ratio falling again with silver outperforming. You know, as bullish as I am on gold, I'm, I'm more bullish on silver because I expect that ratio in the years ahead to fall back to its historical norm, something under 20, maybe closer to 15. Do you expect 
growing political pressure in the US and also in Europe on uh, commodity and precious metal investors through tax and uh, increased margins? Yeah, governments can't to resist you know, things like windfall profit taxes and stuff. Uh, the tragedy is, of course, that they're responsible for these problems in the first place by creating too much money through the central bank. Um, but, yeah, it's going to become more difficult. Uh, but, you know, not just the U.S., uh, Canada. We saw last December how they're raising the taxes in Alberta on the oil sands um, being produced there. Um, you know, governments are always going to go after the wealth, and right now the wealth is being created in the commodity market, so you have to be prepared uh, for government intervention. I mean, we've seen this also with some new mine development in um, in, in other countries, you know, Ecuador and the, the you know, the Aurelian situation That's there. very sad what's happened in Ecuador. Yeah, I mean, it truly is. And, you know, I don't know how these con companies, uh, countries expect to um, uh, increase economic activity if they discourage investment in that way because the jobs that would otherwise be flowing from Aurelian's development um, are going to be lost. It's crazy. Absolutely. They want the gold themselves. Yeah, but they, <laughs> they have to dig it out of the ground, and, you know, no government has that kind of capability. Um, James, finally, one last question, and this one that recurs, the IMF gold sales. With the amount of uh, member countries that have to vote to approve a gold sale, is there a realistic chance that they can happen? I, I think it will happen this time around, because I think we're that close to the end that they have to tap new sources of gold, assuming the IMF hasn't already been tapped. There's a theory going around out there that it's already been loaned into the market and the sales are just going to be accounting entries to, effect, uh, uh, to account for the fact that that gold has already been sold or loaned into the market and effectively sold. Um, but, you know, th th there's more um, um, uh, propaganda to this than there is real impact in the market. Uh, you know, people uh, think that, oh, my goodness, 400 tons, uh, that's going to come onto the market. But even if it does, um, it, it's inconsequential relative to what's happening in the demand. And you have to keep in mind, there's this little above-ground stock of gold compared to this huge above-ground stock of fiat currency. You know, 400 tons is uh, at the IMF. If that comes on the market, it's really just a drop in the ocean. But, you know, the central banks use this for propaganda to keep you from accumulating and buying gold. So just ignore it and... Uh, you know, have that policy where month in, month out, you just keep accumulating because this is a bull market that's going to last many more years, and um, sadly, the dollar's, you know, being destroyed. I've heard you say before, you, when this bull market ends, you're going to spend your gold. That means this is a bull market that never ends. Uh, yeah, well, what it, what it means is that gold is going to return to its historical role in the center of global co commerce. Uh, both as money in terms of its usefulness for economic calculation as well as currency, something that you can actually spend in day-to-day uh, in -day transactions. Excellent. Well, good stuff. James Turk, thank you so much. Uh, do you want to give out your website address so that people can find out more? Yeah, it's, um, you can find more about us at uh, goldmoney.com. And this is James Turk. I'm the founder and chairman of Gold Money. Excellent, and uh, I recommend you visit there every couple of weeks when James uh, posts his latest uh, commentary on the markets. James, quick last question for you. How much gold has America got? <laughs> you know, that's the unanswered question, but I think we're going to find out a little bit more. Uh, as you may know, GATA has put in a Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, they've got an initial reply back from uh, the Federal Reserve saying that they have 400 pages of documents 
Uh, unfortunately, 139 pages are going to be completely redacted, and we won't know what they say. But uh, I think this is quite phenomenal because supposedly the U.S. government's not involved in the gold market, but they're going to come back with 400 pages of documents anyway. 400 pages of documents. That's a lot of work for somebody to have to read. Yeah, well, a lot of work to read, but it's also a lot of indication that you know maybe there are a lot of things going on in the gold market that people don't really uh, refuse to believe, refuse to um, recognize and accept all of Gatto's research over these past several years. Good stuff. Well, James Turk, thank you very much. Thanks, Dominic. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Sky Gold Ventures are exploring for gold in south-central British Columbia. In Canada, they trade on the TSX Venture Exchange under the ticker SKV. Their stock is trading at around 67 cents, their year high was just over $2, and their year low is here at 67 cents. With about 49 million shares outstanding, they have a market cap of around 35 million Canadian dollars. I'm talking now to Brian Groves, their president and CEO, and Scott Weeks, their director and VP of Exploration. Um, Brian, hello. Hi, Dominic. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And Scott, hello. Hello, Dominic. That's just so that the listeners can hear who sounds like what. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us about uh, Sky Gold, what you do, where you do it, and uh, a bit about the history of the company? Certainly. Um, I am, uh, I'm a relatively newcomer to the story. I uh, only joined as president in January of this year. Uh, but what attracted me to the company was the potential for the project, the most advanced asset that the company has, which is called Spanish Mountain. The potential for the project to advance to the mining stage at some stage, hopefully in the near future. Um, in terms of the exploration success that the company had experienced prior to my joining. I think it's testament to the fact that the company has an excellent technical team which has uh, been able to advance the project from discovery to the point where in April of this year we released our first initial resource estimate, compliant resource estimate for the project and that uh, totaled about 1.7 million ounces. Um, the project has advanced very quickly um, and perhaps at this stage if uh, Scott would like to make a couple of comments about the technical aspects and the history of the, the project. It uh, might be a, an opportune time. Okay, Scott, let me just ask you. Uh, Brian said there, hopefully this will be a mine in the near future. Uh, what, when you tell us about the project, tell us what the near future is. Well, Brian mentioned that uh, we came up with our first resource this spring. We hope to update it in the fall. Uh, we're looking at doing our first preliminary economics, uh, hopefully before the end of the year. Uh, looking at probably pre-feasibility work starting in 2009, um, completed uh, by the end of 2009 or early in 2010, so you can make a production decision in 2010. Uh, so we're talking about an extremely fast track to production. Uh, what allows us to do that is uh, the property is located uh, in an area of British Columbia that has very good infrastructure, uh, there's road access, there's power, uh, there's a workforce nearby. Um, the deposit itself lends itself to mining uh, very readily. We're talking about an open pit. Um, so all of these things lead to a very early stage development. So uh, we're talking about 2010 as a, as a production decision. 
based on today's energy prices, do you have a rough idea what your cash costs will be? It's a little early for us to talk about cash costs simply because we don't know how big this deposit could be yet. Uh, Brian mentioned that we've got uh, 1.7 million ounces in a resource right now. Our goal is to double that this year. Uh, but the style of deposit at Spanish Mountain is, is uh, sedimentary hosted vein deposit, which is a type of deposit that uh, uh, some of the biggest gold deposits in the world are these types of deposits. And we're, we're talking about um, deposits like uh, Sukhoi Log and Murintau in Russia, and these are giant gold deposits. These are our 40 and 50 million ounce gold deposits. Um, we still haven't seen anything at Spanish Mountain to limit the size of it. So while we're talking about having you know, uh, 2 million ounces in the resource and looking for 3 million by the end of the year, uh, we're still not sure of what sort of scale we can look at. So uh, until we finish the next stage of exploration, it's really early to, or a little bit too early to talk about the cash costs. Without actually saying it, you've kind of hinted there that this deposit might be enormous. Absolutely. The, the, we've just tested a very small portion of the property itself, and we still haven't found the edges of the gold system. Uh, right now, uh, we've calculated a resource on a very small portion of what we call the main zone, uh, and we're hitting gold mineralization over two kilometers away from the main zone. Um, so that's the thing I think that makes us most excited about this deposit. It, it has the chance to be uh, one of the world's big gold deposits. Were you involved in the initial discovery? And, and uh, if you were, tell us, tell us the story of that. Well, it's always, I think, hard to tell what the original discovery of a deposit was. Uh, exploration at Spanish Mountain goes back um, almost 100 years. It's a, it's a historic placer gold area. Um, there was a fair amount of exploration that was done in the 70s and 80s. Uh, when we took a look at this project, the thing that really interested us is was it was a, a giant soil geochem anomaly over two and a half kilometers long, uh, and it looked like it had the potential to have a, a big bulk tonnage open pit style mineralization on it. And really, the first uh, real strong indications that that was a possibility was in in 2005 when our, our partners Wild Rose uh, drilled some reverse circulation holes. Uh, and hit um, you know, 50, 60, and 100 meter intercepts of a gram and a gram and a half type material. And that was the, really the first indication that we were onto something that could be very big. And that was in 2005. So to think that this has come from, a, from an interesting soil geochem anomaly to a, a, almost a two million ounce resource uh, in really two and a half field seasons is quite extraordinary. I'm going to go back to uh, Brian now and just ask a, a few questions about the company, Brian. Um, how many shares outstanding? Uh, we currently have 49 million shares outstanding on a basic level and fully diluted approximately 52 million, 53 million shares, somewhere in that range. And uh, do you have a broker behind you? Uh, not really, no. We, uh, we tend to be uh, widely held and widely supported in the market. We don't have a particular broker that's been a backer of the company. So uh, who are your biggest shareholders? In terms of institutional holdings, I think we would probably, they would represent probably 60% of the company in terms of institutional shareholder. What about management? How much does management own? Well, unfortunately, this is a situation where the company was, the current management came in at a late stage in the company's development, so uh, we don't have sizable seed round positions, for instance, so consequently I think collectively we own probably at less than 3%. I see. Yep. Are you planning to uh, up that holding? Yes, we are. Yeah. 
through well, I am I am specifically and I'm sure Scott is as well yes. okay I mean through buying yourself or through issuing options or a bit of both I'll uh, be more the buying buying okay. of stock yes how much do you think you're worth that is the $64 question as we say um, we we believe that uh, just to go back to one of the comments that you one of the questions you posed to Scott regarding cash costs we we have done a comparison of operating mines in the world, and there are two mines operated by Kinross, for example, that are comparable in terms of uh, the processing stream, a milling operation, with grades that are actually lower than what our resource grade is. So when people look at our contained grade, and at that 1.7 million ounce range, we're talking a contained grade of about 0.8 to 0.9 grams. On the face of it, it looks like it's low grade, but there are real-world cases. Uh, Don, uh, Fort Knox in Alaska and Brown Mountain in the continental U.S. that are both producing uh, with head grades or contain grades of about 0.5 or 0.6 grams, and they're doing so at cash costs between three and four hundred dollars U.S. an ounce. So it gives us very strong encouragement in terms of where we could be in terms of a, an operation. Uh, hence, if we would put a value per ounce in the ground, I think the market is paying anywhere from 75 up to 100 dollars per ounce in the ground. So clearly, I think that even based on our current resource, without adding blue sky, we should be, people can do the mathematics, the arithmetic, and work out that we should be trading at a much higher level. Uh, in, per ounce in the ground, what are you valued at at the moment? We're probably trading at somewhere around about $30 an ounce in the ground. How much cash have you got? We have approximately 3.5 to $4 million in the Treasury. And uh, what's your burn rate? Well, that's probably going to, it'll be good for probably three to four months at this, at this point in time. And will you raise new money through debt or through uh, equity? Um, for a junior to go debt offering is probably not even on the radar screen, but we're, we're looking at options. We haven't made any decisions at, the, at this stage in terms of financings. Um, I think one thing we have noticed is that we, we have become um, the target of a certain level of interest from larger companies that are looking for the next source of uh, goal to fill their pipeline of development projects, so uh, we don't know what the future holds, but clearly I think the project has taken a turn for the better in terms of having an initial resource, which is a public document. People can judge us and assess us now as uh, potential partners as we move forward in the future. So we, um, as I said, we'll just leave the, uh, leave the options open in terms of what our Okay. financing requirements are as we go ahead. What is your strategy going forward? Are you, are you looking to get taken out or are you looking to bring this into production yourself? Our clearly stated um, objective is to take it through to development. So as Scott laid out the timeline there in terms of where we think we will be, say, by year 2010, uh, that, is, that is our clearly stated policy of what we wish to do with the company. In the current labour supply market, uh, we have to be pragmatic in understanding that to find good people to operate a mine is going to be a challenge. Uh, so we cannot rule out the possibility of looking at all strategic options available to us when we get to that point. Um, however, in the interim, if something or someone should come along and approach the company with a view that they may wish to uh, take a stake or look at the company, I think ultimately it will be the shareholders of the company who will make that decision. You mentioned a um, partnership earlier on, Scott, uh, with Wild Rose. and. You, before the interview, Brian, you mentioned a partnership. Uh, tell us about that. Um, the partnership is the form of a, a traditional joint venture uh, arrangement on the project whereby Wild Rose originally held the project. Sky Gold entered into an agreement with Wild Rose to acquire a 70% interest in the project. So currently the joint venture is a 70-30 uh, interest level with Wild Rose holding 30%. 
um, at this stage uh, prior to my joining and late in November uh, of 2007, an agreement was entered into between Wild Rose and Sky Gold, a plan of arrangement whereby the two companies will merge. And it's just a simple paper transaction. There's no cash. It's a stock transaction. Uh, at the end of the day, that is due to close uh, late this month, early June. And at that stage, uh, Sky Gold will control 100% of the Spanish Mountain Project. And it's a friendly transaction, so we, we see no reason for it not to, not to be consummated. And one of the consequences of that merger is that I will be a shareholder in your company because I own stock in Wild Rose. <laughs> We've got a good picture of, of the company, what you do, what your plans are as you go forward. Give us a bit of Blue Sky. Why, why should I buy Sky Gold uh, ahead of any other developer? I think what we have is a tangible asset. Uh, there are so many juniors out there that are trying to generate projects uh, at a much earlier stage of exploration than our project at Spanish Mountain. We have at least given the market some indication of the gold contained on the project with our resource estimate. As Scott said, we have not found the limits of the main zone of mineralization. This, in terms of blue sky, we, we can wave our arms here in terms of what the full potential is. Um, dare I say it's going to be 5 million plus ounces. I think we could end up being conservative if I say that. But at this stage, all we know is that we have 1.7 million ounces contained in an area which at this stage represents perhaps only 25% of what we know as the current limits of the main zone. And as we continue to step out with our drilling, we continue to expand the limits of mineralization. So I think it's, uh, as I said, five million may be conservative in terms of where we finally end up. And uh, is, is Paul Van Eden a shareholder in, in Skygold? Yes, uh, actually, he is. Um, we did see a hiccup, shall we say, in our stock price post the release of the 43101 resource estimate. And um, Brent Cook, a newsletter writer in the U.S., unfortunately chose to put out a sell recommendation on us. Uh, it was very unfortunate, um, but uh, Paul Van Eden assured both Wild Rose and Sky Gold that he continues to be a holder of the stock and has no intentions of selling. Did Brent Cook put that sell order on seeing your, your um, resource or before? On uh, following the resource system. Good stuff. Why don't we finish uh, with your ticker symbol and your website? Okay. Our ticker symbol is SKV on the TSX Venture Exchange and our web website is www.skygold.ca skygold.ca Scott Weeks, Brian Groves thank you very much thank you Don thank you very much Commodity Watch Radio at mindsight.com Okay, I'm talking now to Mike Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub. Mike's in Hong Kong. I'm in London, as always. Hello, Mike. Hi, Dominic. Um, Mike, let's start with the gold price. It's our favourite subject. We always address it. And uh, let's uh, address where we are now. Okay, well, uh, we've obviously we've seen a little bit of a bump upwards in the gold price, uh, up towards, uh, I think it was about 882 or 884. And now it's pulled back a little bit. But what's really interesting are really two things here. We're seeing these pullbacks happen in lighter and lighter volume. And we're also seeing something which is actually very bullish for gold. Uh, we're seeing the sentiment, even amongst the 
of those who write reports on gold and stocks and so forth, the sentiment on gold is getting very bearish. Um, and that, paradoxically, is bullish because it means people are acting on their views, they're selling, they're coming out of gold. So they're building up reserves and resources which are going to come back into the market when they get bullish again. So Mark Holbert, who tracks these kind of things, uh, says that gold sentiment has now hit a level which is actually very bullish. So we've got the charts coming in our favor. You know, I'm still looking for a possible retest of about 850. And now the sentiment's right as well. So I think we're getting ready for a, a nice move up in gold pretty soon. This always amazes me about, um, you know, so-called gold bugs, is that even though they claim they're gold bugs, there still seems to be so little belief in gold. And I'm sure that's why you see such violent sell-offs in gold stocks. Because if people really believed in them, they, they wouldn't trade them, they'd hold them. And, you know, people do believe in oil. They do believe in peak oil. And, and yet there isn't that same belief with gold. Well, yes, that's right. Um, part of it is that you can't burn gold in your gas tank. You don't, thank God, because it would be a very expensive fuel. But, you know, it, is, it doesn't have the, uh, the same usefulness as oil. That's precisely my point, Mike, is that uh, the obvious need for oil is apparent. The need for gold as a store of wealth still isn't yet. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the posters on GEI had posted something about that. He referred to a novel which is being turned into a movie called The Road. I think it's coming out later this year, and it's been filmed, or it's being filmed now. And he was talking about how this is the post-apocalyptic America, and uh, father and son are out, you know, looking for their survival, and they come across a cache of... Uh, things which are stored somewhere that, you know, before the apocalypse, somebody put down. And they found various useful things in there, but they found Krugerrands. And in, in the book, and I think maybe in the movie as well, they throw away the Krugerrands because they can't eat them. Um, now, I actually think the, the future won't look like that, and Krugerrands will be a very useful thing. Because what is the real value of gold? The real value of gold is money. And, you know, gold, as they, they say on one of the radio shows, Gold is and will always remain money. And uh, that's, its, that, that's its value. Am I right in saying that American fighter pilots in their little emergency packs, should they find themselves stranded in an alien country, are given a couple of gold sovereigns? Yeah, I, I've, I've been told that. And funnily enough, it's gold sovereign rather than an American gold coin because... You know, gold sovereigns uh, trade mo mo mainly on their gold value. So, um, whereas American gold coins, there aren't many around anymore, they trade on numismatic value. They trade at a fat premium to gold. And the government's smart enough to realize that, you know, it's better to, to have, you know, something, instead of paying extra for it, I suppose they could print the coins, but then they'd all get stolen. Um, so they use gold sovereigns. And gold sovereigns... Um, have been a global money at certain times in the past and maybe again in the future. I don't uh, know if this is something you watch, Mike, but uh, with my seven-year-old boy, I've recently been uh, subjected to all six episodes of Star Wars. Uh, and in fact, I've been subjected to them several times. Um, and 
episode one, which is actually the fourth that was made, um, yeah. they end up, you know, in the far distant reaches of the galaxy. And one of the heroes tries to pay for something. And this was made, I guess, back in around 2000. I'm not sure about that, but, you know, some years ago. Um, and one of the heroes tries to pay for something with an imperial note. And he's sternly, his attempt to make this payment is sternly rejected with the call, your money is no good here. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Your money is no good here. Well, that's what happens to fiat currency, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Particularly in the distant reaches of the galaxy. So, yeah, so what happens is a fiat currency like the dollar is maybe useful everywhere for a long time. And then eventually it's not useful in a few countries, and then more and more countries it's not useful, until finally it's not useful even in the country of issue. So maybe that's where we're at it. Okay, let's move on to this wonderful, wonderful occurrence that happened the day before yesterday, where Caroline Flint, who is an English MP, accidentally dropped some papers as she was walking into the Prime Minister's residence, and a uh, rather an alert photographer managed to get a snap of those papers. And these were her papers for the cabinet meeting of the 13th of May, in which yep. she was to brief the prime minister on the state of the housing market. And one of the things, one of the quotes that all the newspapers jumped on, which was that they, and I quote, Present trends clearly show sizable falls in prices later this year, at best down 5 to 10 percent year on year. Now, a lot of the media's jumped onto this and they've all started talking about the house prices. And, and they're kind of jumping onto this saying, you know, this is the truth. This is what ministers really think. Now, if this is what ministers really think, what was surprising about these, these papers was the amount of BS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. And actually, as I'm speaking to you, I'm looking at a, a, an image of, of this page. And right in the middle of it, um, it says, underlying demand for housing remains high, and the fundamentals of the economy are sound. <laughs> and it says the market's being affected by the global credit crunch, which is making it difficult for many who would like to buy. It's, it's crap. I'm sorry, it's, it's just not true. The um, fundamentals of the economy are sound, and, and they're kind of repeating it like it's some kind of mantra that if you repeat it often enough, it'll come true. And I can understand why they say it publicly, but I can't believe they're saying it privately as well. Well, yeah, because, I mean, at the top, I mean, there is uh, there is this bit of honesty about the, uh, at best, down 5 to 10% a year. So you see a sort of honest statement like that, and then right below it, just a few lines below it, you see this sort of spin and fluff. And, you know, either they're lying to themselves and they know it, or they really, really don't get it. And I think, I'm fearing it's, it's a bit of both. Here's the best bit. We can't know how bad it will get. Okay, that's a very negative sentence. But we need to plan now to put in place effective measures against the risk that it does not get worse. Well, the first issue there is, is it such a bad thing if it gets worse? But then it yeah. says, 
and to prepare for the upturn. Yeah. <laughs> How far away is this upturn? We are continuing to monitor the situation and take appropriate action. Given that it's your appropriate action that has got us into this mess, I dread to think what the appropriate action that's going to get us out of this mess is. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, the 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 real problem is that uh, thanks to you know hype and uh, very aggressive lending and uh, you know various policies that the labor government's been fomenting. Um, house prices got enormously overvalued, and what's happening now is they're being allowed to come back down to earth. Um, but are they going to be allowed to come back to earth? I mean, eventually they will do, but the labor government may come up with various policies to try and prop them up at artificially high levels. I mean, if you remove the hype, I mean, you change the sentiment, that's happened already, and you remove the aggressive lending, house prices fall. And they need to fall all the way back to where they're affordable again by first-time buyers. And that's not 5 to 10% off the highs. That's more like 20 to 30 to 30 to 40% off the highs. And, uh, you know, we're not, you know, we're a long way from that. And there's nowhere, is there any sort of re reasonable, rational understanding that that's the reality of the situation? Mike, I bought a place in uh, 1994, as you know, and I was very lucky. I got in at the bottom of the market. And then I bought another place in about 1996-97. And I remember moaning to estate agents then that housing was overpriced and that it had no relationship to, you know, what a first-time buyer could afford. <laughs> it's. I don't think we're going to back to anything like those levels, but nevertheless... To go back to first-time buyer affordability, it's a long, long fall. If you measure it by sound currency, it is anyway. Well, it is. And and I think I was listening. Actually, I re-listened to this podcast we did a year ago, and I recommend people do it. The one, Parashaped or To the Moon, the property, uh, you know, Moonbound or Parashaped, I think was the actual title. And it was really interesting to listen to different points of view and how much they've changed in the last year. They've really changed dramatically. But a year ago, in July, John Rigglesworth was talking about lenders going from six times earnings to seven times earnings. And he was predicating his bullish forecast at that time. He's another year of the bullish market he was talking about, based on the fact that people were going to go to seven times earnings. Now, you know, normally... Through quite a few years of history, you know, three or three and a half times was the maximum, and he was talking about going to twice that. So, you know, it's 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 really crazy, and that's why prices got so high because the money was there through this aggressive lending that fueled these high prices. But really, I mean, now if you look at it rationally, you know, people had to believe this big lie in order to pay that much for prices mm -hmm. for for properties. And, um, you know, the lie's not being believed anymore. Prices are coming down. I, I must say, I really liked Rigglesworth. I didn't agree with him, but I did like him. But one, one thing he, he said is he did say, if interest, it all depends on interest rates. And if interest rates go up, then look out below. But what has happened, and I think what he meant was, it all depends on lending. And he yes. kind of thought that if interest rates stay low, then lending will stay cheap. 
and he said if but if if lending the cost of lending goes up then look out below but what has happened is the cost of lending hasn't gone up it's just that no one's lending yeah that's what nobody foresaw and i mean we all foresaw declines but we didn't foresee this this drought of lending and um, well i think uh, if you listen to that bit again i think you will find that actually i said interest rates don't have to go up to kill the market it could simply be that there's a contamination that the fears of, of lending from the U.S. spread to the U.K., and that's exactly what's happened. And, you know, it's credit crunch driven, i.e. the lack of lending. But, you know, what's funny about this is, you know, it isn't that people have really stopped lending. It's they're really just returning to where they were, you know, five or ten years ago. They haven't stopped. I live down in, in Wandsworth in southwest London, which is a reasonably um, well-to-do, if you like, uh, middle-class area, and we have a lot of nice family houses here, and a year ago, everything was flying off the shelves, and now yeah. there are for sale signs everywhere, and what's happening after a few weeks, there's a, a for sale sign appearing uh, next to the for sale sign from a different agent so what's happening is the uh you know the guy's going multiple agent and uh there was a very nice house that uh actually it wasn't a very nice house it was a it was a big house that got bought and they've spent a lot of money doing it up and now they've just finished doing it up and uh, a for sale sign has appeared and it would surprise me if they got if they got their buy cost plus the cost of doing it up back well, that, that's that's what happens in a bear market, and you know what the, the, the psychology here I think is really interesting. And I've talked about this before, but it's worth mentioning again. I think is look, people are reading about price falls, and so I think the the world believes that there will be a drop of five to ten percent, maybe more. In in an environment like that, you're not going to pay market price for something. Because, you, you know, that market price is not going to be the market price six months from now. So the only reason why people will buy now, unless they really are desperately in love with the place that they've seen, but the only real reason most people will buy is if they think they're getting a bit of a bargain, if they think they're buying something below market. So, you know, if you're going to sell now, you've got to cut your price down to a level where it's 5 or 10% below what's perceived as market. Now, the problem with that is that, you know, today's uh, bargain is tomorrow's market value. So, you know, you get a situation where um, you get all these 5% cuts, uh, and some of them people sell, but then you need another round of 5% cuts, 5 or 10% cuts, to get the next round of buyers to come in. So that's why the market price is going to fall. And, you know, George Soros talks about how markets uh, don't tend towards equilibrium. They tend towards, you know, excess in an upper direction, excess in a downwards direction. And he's afraid that uh, prices will actually go below value. They'll go below what's justified by incomes and what's justified by, because of this trend of needing to see a bargain and, you know, people being becoming forced sellers. So, I mean, yeah, I think the sort of natural price for uh, house, houses in the UK is probably 30 to 35% off the high. but. If the momentum really gets going and the forced sales really start happening, you know, prices could drop, you know, even more than that. It could drop 40 or 50%. That's possible. You know, uh, I came back to my house the day before yesterday 
uh, I obviously rent, and uh, I came back to my house to see a big board outside my house saying for sale by auction. <laughs> oh dear. Where you're living? Yeah. Uh, and it's being auctioned off at the end of the month. Now, um, my place is owned by Norwich Union. And Norwich oh, wow. Union announced on the bank holiday, the first bank, the, the first day after the bank holiday at the end of August. So this is just after the credit crunch hit. And that they own a lot of property around here and they announced that they were liquidating their entire portfolio around here. And um, I speculated at the time that it was due either to them having to raise some cash to pay for insurance damage for all the floods that had gone on in the summer or that they foresaw they were going to be hit by this credit crunch and needed to raise some cash. But, you know, they they own millions of pounds worth of property and um, that they were selling it was a big, you know, it was it was a significant moment. But anyway, so my place goes up for auction uh in a in a couple of weeks time and i presume my tenancy will just transfer to the new uh buyer but it, they're auctioning off the whole house i live on the ground floor and upstairs from me is an old lady a sitting tenant so presumably she's on a cheap rent and mm. you know the person that's buying it has the potential to be buying a big family house in a nice street in a good catchment area for a good school in a nice borough of london but they've mm. got to wait five ten one twenty years for the old lady upstairs to pass on mm. before it's convertible into a nice family house so it's going to be mm. fascinating to see how much it goes for well i think you should go along maybe you should even bid because these types of places, uh, in a good market, people would say, fine, you know, why don't I buy it now? Eventually I have this wonderful asset in my hands. And while I'm waiting, the price will go up. But they can't say that anymore because the price is clearly not going to go up over the next several months, maybe the next few years. So you may find there aren't that many people willing to bid on the place. Well, and you might find because of that sitting tenant, and even yourself sitting. Um, the, the, with the my reputation. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that. But, uh, you know, in terms of they're uncertain how long people will stay. And, you know, the old old lady, I guess she probably pays quite a low rent, doesn't she? Yeah. She said, you know, it's an old, what do they call it, a protected tenancy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people look at the cash that it, 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 I mean, I would have thought that the property could easily be sold for a 30% or even more discount to market value in today's market value. Well, I'll, I mean, I guess they'll have a reserve, but I'm certainly going to go along and, and and see what they're see what they're saying. The thing is, Mike, how how well do you know the the your your neighbour, the old lady upstairs? Yeah, I don't know her well at all. I know her well enough to talk to, but I mean, in terms well, I mean, of her, I would have thought. I mean, maybe maybe she'd like to to you know sweeten her retirement a little bit. Is that you can say to her, you're thinking of buying the house. And uh, if you do buy it, would she consider moving out in return for some money? And, you know, if you can then go and resell the property for, you know, 10% below market value after having bought it for 30 or 35% below market value, you could pay her quite a lot of money for, you know, her agreement to, to move out. Yeah, I mean, I could go and ask her that, but I will say she's, she's an old lady, she's a sitting tenant, she's housebound, yep. uh, she's deaf. So she only hears what she wants to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the government's quite difficult as well. People to, well, there we go. The difficult people to negotiate with. 
But um, I mean, I could certainly propose that. But but you know, even if I bought it for thirty percent below market value, I'd still need to take out a mortgage, which is yeah. you know problematic. I hear what you're saying, but it's a, it's a, it's it's. I would have done it three years ago, but it's a risky trade now. It's a really risky trade. Well, it's, you know, yes, it's a risky trade, but because it's perceived as a risky trade, you're going to have fewer buyers competing. And I mean, I I fear what's going to happen here is, in this case, this is very predictable in a way, the price will not be allowed to fall to uh, a low value because Dollar Tuning will be there with some kind of a bid. You know, they won't let it go for whatever. They'll be there propping the price. Either someone who's you know dressed like a Norwegian banker, or someone who's you know acting on their behalf and doesn't look like a Norwegian banker will probably be there bidding as well. So you probably find you won't get a bargain, but you never know. I mean, you know, it maybe maybe Norwegian has a problem, and mm-hmm. this the decision of how of selling this has actually gone into someone else's hands, and they won't be able to protect the price. But I mean, my gosh, if they've got a whole load of them on the market, I can promise you one thing. For sure, the price of property in your neighborhood is going to go down. Well, there's um, there's a, an old film, and I can't remember what it was, but the uh, um, it was with Joe Pesci, and he was advising some youngster. Joe Pesci was a kind of slum landlord, and he advises the youngster. There's three things to look for in a property, and you could see the youngster was expecting to hear the line location, 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 and to which Joe Pesci then said, "Death." Destitution or divorce. <laughs> That's good. So these things happen, don't they? They do. Well, you know, it's interesting that bit um, and how people pick out and discuss a neighborhood and say, well, you know, yeah, prices might drop in the UK. They might drop 5 or 10%. But they're not going to drop here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I think, you know, actually it was it, it was in the interview from last year, the podcast, uh, the Pear-Shaped podcast, where Marin, Marin Somerset Webb, was saying, well, you know, that just isn't how it works. I mean, prices drop everywhere. You know, no, nowhere is, yes, I mean, one area might drop, you know, 15%, while another area drops 20%. But no one's going to escape the bullet. No, no village in Wimbledon or house on the best address in London, they're, they're all going to get hit. And it's interesting that, that that point was made, I think yesterday they had uh, this news about the RIC survey here. Here on Bloomberg in Hong Kong, they're talking about UK prices. and They were interviewing people who were saying, oh yes, well, London was down the most this month. And what we're finding is all those people who told us, well, London's not going to drop, they're, they're finding that, in fact, that's not true. You know, London's joined the party as well. Mm. Do you know what I think the conclusion of all this is? I think we're going to have to do a year's anniversary of, of, of pear-shaped or moon-bound and uh, pick up on where we left off last year. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I'd, I'd be delighted to do that. I don't know if John, John will join us again, but uh, it would be interesting to get uh, some people on that show. Maybe, maybe do you know what? Uh, I think he will posters because... on GEI can tell us, you know, give us some ideas of who else we can get on the show. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. I mean, I think John will because I think he was, uh, I think he was a pretty, he was an honest bloke, and uh, and uh, he was a straight talking bloke. And he kind of said, and he, his basic premise was, if if lending doesn't dry up, then the house prices won't dry up. That's what he meant when yeah. if interest rates stay low, 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say when I when I re-listened to that interview like yesterday, um, I, I thought we were really quite easy on him, and I was thinking, you know, you said to him, but I mean, he is in, certainly in person, and you know, even you can hear it a little bit on his. In, in the interview, he's he's a very charming guy, and he you know he comes across as being very genuine. But I mean, he was very wrong, and it'd be interesting to see because um, it'd be interesting to see um, you know what he has to say after a year. Have you and, gone back? I mean, I think he has a problem. And he, he can't actually get very very bearish because he has various clients. But no, there's certainly were some hints of his bearishness, uh, and he was putting it off in the future sometime. He says, I can't rule out a crash in, you know, 2009 or something. And, you know, I think he's probably just going to tell us it came a bit earlier. <laughs> you should go back. On the, on the Money Week website, there's an article that was written by Fred Harrison in 2005 about the 18-year mm. property cycle. And, I mean, my God, the guy nailed it. Well, here's what we have to do. We've got to try and get Harrison and Rigglesworth together to see what yeah. might come out of that. But I don't think, I don't think Rigglesworth will lie. I think he'll say lending's dried up, we're, we're mullered. Yeah, and, and what, you know, what's going to bring lending back? <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, you know, certainly what's, there's, there's nothing I can see that's going to bring it back to this uh, 85, 90, 95% type lending we were seeing a year ago. I mean, that, that's madness. Well, I, I described, I was talking to Erwin Oli and I had lunch with Erwin a couple of days ago. Erwin is the CEO of Pan-African and various other junior mining companies. And he said, mm -hmm. what's going on with your housing market? And I said, I described the 125% loan and the 100% mm -hmm. loan. And Erwin, in a kind of very kind of New York accountant's kind of way, winced when I described <laughs> what a 125% loan was. And then just it couldn't stop laughing at how ridiculous the notion is. And, uh, you know, all, like you say, all we're doing is reverting to sound lending practices. Well, there was certainly a time that I remember, and I think we're headed back there, where the banks were, they were happier to lend to owner-occupiers and less happy to lend to buy-to-let investors. Uh, and they would lend less to buy to lend investors. And funny enough, in this, this crazy market we've seen, it got reversed. Uh, you know, I'm not sure why that happened, but I guess what was happening is people were looking at their, um, they were looking at their books and they were looking at the history of the last five to ten years of bull market and saying, they, well, I haven't lost much money on buy to let here, have I? I've only lost, you know, point something percent where I've lost a little bit more on uh, owner-occupier lending. Therefore, buy-to-let lending must be safer. Well, that was madness. And now they're going to find that they're going to have big, big problems in their buy-to-let portfolios, big problems. Um, and, you know, I, I can see a day when buy-to-let lending goes back to 60%, and, you know, everyone can't get it. Now I think it's probably fairly easy to borrow still 70 maybe 75%, but... My gosh, when you start seeing a lot of foreclosures, that's going to get tightened down as well. Well, Mike, here are the sums. I bought a place in 1994, and I bought mm. it for £75,000. And you could rent that place out for £1,000 a month, i.e. twelve grand a year, probably a mm. little bit more, maybe even fourteen grand a year. Now, mm. but you do the sums, 12 grand a year uh, dividend on a 75 grand investment is what? 
Well, 15, 15% yield, is it? It's 15% yield. So, you know, those are the kind of levels that we've got to go back to if we're going to repeat the 89 to 94 crash. Well, yeah, but, you know, that, remember, that was in a time of rising inflation and, and pretty, pretty high interest rates. Um, so the yields, I don't think we'll go back there. But the, I guess the main point of that is that the yields even then were way above interest rates. And if you'd gone out and financed 100% at the prevailing interest rate, you, I don't know what you would have paid in terms of percent. But it wasn't 15%. It was a lot less than that. So you were actually getting a yield, a gross yield especially. I'd say above. that was about double. Yeah. The yield was at least double what the interest rates were. Well, rates got pretty high then, so maybe you know, but it was. I know, but, the, the, but, the, but you're talking about the Black Monday and and uh, with all the all that when yeah. rates went over fifteen percent. But I, I still still think rates were below ten percent when I bought that property. Rates were below ten percent. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So you you were getting a five percent or more um, cushion uh, above and beyond interest rates. A hundred percent loan. You, if you borrowed a hundred percent, you you would have paid nine percent, maybe whatever, and you're getting six percent gross yield more than that. Mm-hmm. You know, so six percent more than today's interest rate would, you know, give you a yield of over ten percent. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, wow, that's a long, long way to fall. That's that's the sort of drop. But I don't think that's that, an unreasonable target. Well, in that case, prices in that environment, we're talking about prices, you know, getting cut in half from the top mm-hmm. or more. So, yeah, or rents rising. Yeah. Yeah, our rents rising, but you know that's another thing. You know, people talk about that, and I think there is in certain parts of London, you know, upward pressure on rent. But you know, if this recession really hits, I wonder if rents might actually go down. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the building you live, right? <laughs> well, damn right. Listen, uh, we've talked long enough, Mike. It's uh, it's always a pleasure, and it's been a pleasure yet again. Uh, as we close, why don't you give out your website? Yes, um, we'll have to start a thread on this. Uh, the website is www.globaledgeinvestors.com. Good stuff, Michael Hampton. Thank you very much. My job. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.